patience with me as I have a, a tickle in my throat. He'll just be with me as I, I might cough. <clears throat> but we're working together here in Titus. Uh, you might wonder if you're with us regularly on the Lord's Day morning, well, why are we in Titus? I thought we were going through Acts. Well, we are. Uh, but we're taking a little pause on Acts. We're at a good spot to do that. The gospel was about to expand from ministry in Jerusalem to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's what we will see as we re resume uh, our studies in Acts. But this morning, we're going to be continuing to reflect on the love of our Father. This was a series that we did at the end of last year, and I've kind of dabbled in it again. And I want to bring you back to thinking on the love of God our Father that we see here in Titus chapter 3. And I'm going to focus our attention on verses 3 to 7, but I want to start our reading in verse 1. And before I read God's Word, let's ask the Lord's help in prayer again. Heavenly Father, we come as a needy people to be taught of You, for our natural minds cannot understand the things that come from You. So Lord, would You send Your Holy Spirit to help us. Would You enlighten our eyes with the truth? Would You show us of the glory of our God in salvation through Christ and applied by the Spirit? And would You cause all this truth to rejoice our hearts? For we pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of the Word of the Lord? Titus 3, again I'm reading from verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, this is God's Word, and may He be praised for it. Brethren, please be seated. Well, this morning as we look together in Titus 3, we are seeing a phenomenal declaration of the love of our God towards us, His people. However, before we get to the meat of God's love for us, we have to understand that this wonderful statement comes in the midst of an argument. Paul is saying to Titus that the Christian has certain responsibilities. And what are those? Some of them, Titus 3.1, are to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be ready for every good work. Paul is here detailing the life that the gospel of Christ requires of us. It's a life really that it produces through us. A life where we walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them as the workmanship of Christ. And Paul then explains in verse 2 what it looks like to be ready for every good work. 
That is, that we speak evil of no one, that we avoid quarreling or we're peaceable people, we're gentle, and we show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, you can probably imagine the objections to this logic of the Apostle Paul. But what about these sorry, brutal governmental officials who are over us? Surely you don't mean them. Nero is on the throne. I want to remind you consistently in the Bible, in the New Testament, where we're being called to be submissive to governing officials. Nero is the one on the throne. And I don't remember how much you remember, you recall your Roman history, your ancient history about how bad Nero was. But let me tell you, it was way worse than anything that we have ever experienced or even come close to experiencing in this nation. But Nero's on the throne. You want us to be obedient to governing authorities? Not only that, look at men like Pilate, governor in Jerusalem, or Gallio, who was proconsul of Achaia, who had no problem permitting Paul to be attacked and allowing a brother in the church at Corinth to be beaten right there in front of the governing officials. Or what about Festus and Felix, who leave Paul in prison? These men are crooked, uncaring, and lacking in gentleness. Corruption abounds among them all. Shall we be kind to those who are cruel to us? And that doesn't even consider, of course, the common Roman who was just scraping by, looking out for number one, who stirred up mobs of people in Ephesus or mocked Christians in Corinth. In fact, what did Paul say of the people of Crete, even in this letter? It's one of the most striking verses in the Bible, which would not gain Paul any cred with political correctness. Titus 1, 12 and 13, look at it. What does he say? He says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. How would you like Americans to be listed like that? Are we courteous to these kind of people? And the whole world is against us, Christians. Jews are persecuting us. The Gentiles malign us. Why should we show them any gentleness? Now, Paul is prepared for these kind of objections, and he's setting forth a basis of living with non-Christians, which reminds us of who we are. And then Paul's argument will reach to the height of God's love, God's rescue mission, what he's made us to be. In view of our deplorable state, it's simply unimaginable that the Father would take action toward us in love, and yet that's what he did. And in his love, this salvation brings transformation, and it transforms the way that we live with other people. Well, we're going to consider Paul's words here, which erupt into a declaration of the love of God, and I want you to see three things with me this morning. First, see with me what we once were, what we once were, and it's there in verse 3. Now, verse 3, it begins with the word for, so Paul is logically linking back, and he's giving you the reasons for all the commands about obedience to civil rulers and showing perfect courtesy to all, for we ourselves, and notice how Paul is including himself, we ourselves were once. And then Paul lists seven things which characterized us as non-Christians, as unbelievers. 
Now, before we speak of those, there's one little word not in your ESV, which is in the Greek, and I want to mention it to you. The text says literally, for we once also ourselves were. And that also is very significant because with it, Paul's drawing a comparison between what we Christians were before Christ and what non-Christians are right now. The reason you struggle to be submissive, to obey, to not speak evil and avoid quarreling, to be peaceable and gentle with non-Christians is because they are these seven things I'm about to tell you right now. But Paul is saying this is what we also once were. What's he getting at? We, by nature, brethren, are no different than these hostile, hard-hearted attackers and maligners of us as Christians. Remember that. Don't forget your former sinful state. Don't exalt yourself in pride as though you made yourself a morally upstanding person. You didn't. Something happened to you. Now, dear friends, Paul makes this kind of argument in a multitude of places. In 1 Corinthians, in 1 Thessalonians, in Romans, Colossians, Ephesians. Peter also points it out in 1 Peter 1. Because if we are to remain humble as believers, and if we are to stand in awe of the grace of God, and we are to live with mercy toward other people, we must remember what we were. Grace isn't amazing if we think we were already pretty good. Grace is amazing as we see all of our former evils. Grace also promotes humility and compassion toward evil people as we remember we were rescued from our blindness. So what exactly were we? I'll tell you, Paul says, we were once foolish That is, we lacked spiritual understanding. We were darkened, blind, insensible, entirely lost to the things of God. We didn't have a clue. Paul includes himself in this. That's striking. He was a religious person, but he had zeal without the true knowledge of God. God didn't shape our thoughts. That's what we were. Second, we were disobedient. Now, Paul, I think, means disobedient to God, but in Romans 1, disobedience to God leads to disobedience to parents. It's interesting that's included in the list, young people. Disobedience to parents, that's displeasing to the Lord. And it could carry over in Romans 13 to being disobedient to God's authorities in the civil realm or being disobedient in the context of the church, unsubmissive to governing officials in the congregation. In other words, Paul's saying we did what pleased ourselves and we disobeyed the law of God. Third, we were led astray, or literally we were those being continually deceived. Now when Paul uses this word elsewhere, he speaks of being deceived by the power of sin. We thought sin would bring us lasting pleasure and satisfaction. That sin would be the key to an abundant life. But we found none of those things in our sin. Instead, we were held captive in a cycle of diminishing returns. You know what I mean by diminishing returns? 
Every time you go to it, you seem to get less and less from it. It's like the present you got at Christmas. You're really excited when it was there. And two weeks later, you're not so excited anymore. Well, we kept on indulging our desires, but happiness remained elusive. Hence, in the fourth place, we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Sin's power controlled us, enslaved us. We were dominated by the desires of our flesh. We had passions and pleasures of every kind continually, is the sense of the original. And the whole bent of this phrase is, our passions and pleasures were turned in the opposite direction of loving God. So fifthly, we were spending our days in malice and envy. What is malice? It's something like perversity, wickedness, and ill will. And envy is the grudging spirit that cannot bear to contemplate someone else's success. We were spending our days in malice and envy, so our lives were conducted in an evil frame of mind. Rightly then, does Paul say, sixthly, we were hated by others. We were looking out for ourselves. We were seeking our pleasure, so we stomped on people to get what we want. And obviously they hated us when we were conducting ourselves as self-centered, obnoxious people. And then finally, seventhly, being hated, we lashed out in our attitudes and actions by hating one another. What a depressing list. And some of us might be tempted to read it and say, I wasn't that bad. But this is God's Word. And you have to take up your argument with Him. This is what the Lord is saying about what we were. And brethren, this is, again, not the only place that the Bible makes a long list of what we were like. Paul's point is, in view of these things, how can we now as Christians ever exalt ourselves over people who haven't yet tasted the grace of God when we were so vile, so blindly ignorant of God's grace in Christ formally? And remembering the other viceless in Scripture, things which are left out here, we should ask, why does Paul only mention seven things? Do you know something about the number seven? Something that's significant in Scripture that is a symbol to us of completeness? Do you think Paul could have gone on? Absolutely. He could have kept going. And he does in other places. You see, what is it that promotes disdain and cruelty in our hearts toward other people. Well, fundamentally, it's our pride. If we would be gentle toward fellow sinners, brethren, we have to grasp our own sinful state. We have to have a true understanding that, as Paul puts it in Romans 7, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Well, do we see this? Are we humbled by the sins that once characterized us? Are we driven low and stirred with a sympathy for the blind and the lost who are in our former depraved state? Do we pity them rather than slander them? It's easy to fling darts at the lack of wisdom of our government officials, forgetting the paucity of wisdom that we once possessed. Are we guilty of arrogance? of maligning words, failing to keep in view what we were. Why should we be different? 
Well, it's certainly not due to our wonderful intelligence or some spark of goodness within us. No, something outside of us has come upon us and made us different <clears throat> through no goodness of our own. And what is that? Well, second, we see with them the kindness and love of God our Savior. Now, Paul closed his description of our former state with a horrific picture of man's hostility, hated by others and hating one another. But then notice the contrast that comes immediately with the description of God's character and what God did. Verses 4 and 5. But, while we were hating, hated by others and hating, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. What Paul wants our eyes focus entirely upon here is the source of our salvation. Here we were, sunk in a mire of darkness, deception, domination by sin, and defiance. And in spite of all of our vileness, a spring of goodness and love from God the Father appeared. And notice what's said of our Father. Two words describe the Father's disposition. Goodness and loving kindness. I mean, you probably say, well, I thought that was three words. It's two in the original. Goodness and loving kindness. Literally, love for mankind. And it's clear from the grammar that goodness and love for mankind form one concept because it goes with the verb appeared, which is singular. And yet each of these words warrants reflection that we might know what our God is like. What is He like? He's good. Goodness from Him. Goodness here means generosity or kindness. It's the opposite of a harsh disposition. And while many seem to think, even Christians struggle with this, that the Father has no kindness at all toward me except what came at the high price of Jesus' blood. That is, the Father doesn't like me except as He sees me in Jesus. Brethren, that's not true. Our Father is the fountain of all kindness. He is good and He does good. And it's the Father's kind heart that motivated the coming of Jesus. The atonement through the blood of Christ happens because of the goodness of God. God spared not His only Son. But He did what? He, he gave Him, he, he sent Him to be crushed for us. All our experience of grace flows from the large heart of our good Father because goodness or kindness is His very nature. Now, in our sin, we are tempted to think that God is nothing but holiness, majesty, and wrath, and He's burning with anger in, against our iniquities. And yet, the Gospel unveils the infinitely compassionate and gracious Father who exercises His goodness from His own sovereign freedom. Isn't this what the Lord told Moses that He was like? Remember, Moses is praying after the golden calf debacle Lord, show me your glory. And Moses is told by the Lord, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And his goodness passes before Moses and he declares, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that was God revealing His character in the wake of the golden calf debacle, similar in kind to these seven things said about us. So here, brethren, we have a God of kindness who's revealing His tender nature toward us when absolutely nothing constrained God to do that. What we deserved was judgment. Our sorry, sinful state cried out for punishment. And yet, God freely brought goodness. He brought unimaginable generosity. Who is a God like this? But then Paul has another word to describe the heart of God. He is also loving kindness, or he has a love for mankind. This is actually the word from which we get philanthropy. Now, usually we use that word about some act of benevolence, like a celebrity giving millions to starving Africans or starving people in India or something of that nature. But what Paul means by this word is that there has been a generous outpouring of God's kindness on mankind that is motivated by His love. What is the generous outpouring? John 3.16 God so loved the world that He did what? He gave His only begotten Son. Now what should strike us in John 3.16 and in what Paul is saying here is God's love for mankind or for the world. In both places, that's shocking language precisely because the world is so bad. Well, that's the point Paul's making. Do you see what kind of people we were? How could the Father exercise His love towards these people who were so despicable? But brethren, this is the marvel of the Gospel. The Father is revealing Himself in love toward us. Those who should not be the objects of His love because we are entirely unlovable. Nevertheless, to these, to you and me, once wretched, but now washed believers, to those who turn to God in faith and repentance, our Father has manifested Himself in love as Savior. Are you amazed? Do you live in awe of the love of God? I've quoted this language before of John Owen, who I'm really paraphrasing. But he says, no, it's our sin as well as our weakness to walk around with a heaviness on us as Christians thinking that our Father doesn't really love us. Have you forgot your privileges? That God loves you? How do you know He gave His Son to save? Notice the title here for the Father. He's God, our Savior. The Father saved us. Now, we're used to Jesus being called the Savior. That's what Jesus' name means. And 15 times in the New Testament, we use that language of Jesus Himself. Paul's about to do it in verse 6. But initially, this declaration of God's rescue mission to ruined sinners is focusing on the Father as our Savior. What's Paul saying? Our salvation is the gift of the Father's love. It is from the freeness of His grace. When there was nothing good in us, no work that we had to offer God in righteousness as the basis for our acceptance, God came to us in mercy. 
It was, Ephesians 2, abounding or great or rich mercy. Mercy flowed from His heart in sovereign love. And His sovereign love, brethren, is all we've got. We have no room to boast. We have nothing to be proud of. We are not saved by anything we have done. What could we wretches have to offer God? Even our faith and repentance are not perfect. They're defiled. That doesn't mean we cease to have a duty to repent and believe. No, we must respond to His saving mercies and come to Christ. What did Jesus say? Repent and believe the Gospel. If you're foul and filthy, come to Me. Rest in Me. And yet we remain debtors to mercy alone. We sang of this in Bonner's great hymn, Not What My Hands Have Done. We love God. Why? Because He first loved us. And what should arise from our hearts in view of this? Well, brethren, our hearts should be humbled. Why, O Lord, have You shown such love to me? Why have You saved me? And what is God's answer? Well, it's because I, I saw a hint of something in you. No! That's not the answer. The answer is, because I'm good. Because I'm kind. Because I am loving. I chose to exercise sovereign mercy. And brethren, as we grasp that this love is eternal in Christ and unchangeable, never to be moved from us, it should cause our hearts to swell with affection and love in response to God our Savior. Our souls should be consumed with gratitude as we look upon the kindness of God, His tenderness toward us, given freely in Christ. It should drive out our anxieties and fears and wonderings. You are loved. You are precious in the sight of God. When you feel like anxiety is driving you into the ground, what do you need to know? Your God is good. And He's done good to you. And He's loved you, not because you've measured up to His standard because you never could, but He's loved you because He chose to and His salvation will never be torn away from you. And if your God has been kind to you when you were evil and ungrateful, if He came to us with saving grace, well then how can we not be gentle people? Paul isn't content however, merely to say that God the Father saved us and leave it at that, though that would emphasize His sovereign work in salvation, Paul wants to explain more of the workings of our triune God that come from the fountain of the Father's loving heart and had absolutely nothing to do with us. So third we see what the Father's saving love accomplished and applied. In verse 4, Paul had said the Father's goodness and love appeared And when it appeared, verse 5, He saved us. Now it begs the question, when did the Father's goodness and love appear so that the Father saved us? Well, when did it appear? The Greek verb to appear means literally to shine, to be manifested. It refers to something visible, like the sun breaking over the horizon. So when was the Father's goodness and love 
made visible to us so that He saved us? Paul's answer is very simple. It is in the appearance of Jesus Christ in His birth, life, death, and resurrection. Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. That is, all different kinds of people. God's love and kindness was on display in the gift of His Son. But then how did the salvation of the Father in Christ get applied to us? It's great that Jesus is like a sunshine on the horizon, but how does what Jesus did get to me so that I move from a state of wretchedness and sin to actually benefiting from the work of Christ? Well, Paul explains it, verses 5 and 6. The Father saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The win of the Father's salvation doesn't only apply to the appearance of Christ on earth as He dies for His people. The win of salvation also is tied to the specific act or the moment where we were personally taken from a state of misery to a state of salvation. From a state where dominion and darkness reigned over us to a state of salvation and renewal through the sovereign work of God. And it deserves emphasis again, because Paul keeps emphasizing it, that this salvation came with no contribution on our part. Do you see that in verse 5? He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. I don't know how Paul could get any clearer than that. You gave nothing. You are not in a co-op program with God. Salvation is by grace, and the next word is crucial. Alone. Alone. Not any of your works. Nothing you did. Grace alone. Not our present good works. Not Sorry, not our past good works. Not all of the efforts in the moment is the basis for God's salvation. God acted because He chose to be merciful. It's by His mercy. And His salvation is coming to make the filthy now new. And Paul begins to describe two things which occur as God saved us through the working of the Holy Spirit. What did God do to us? Well, He did something in our hearts. There was inner cleansing, the washing of regeneration, and then there was inner transformation, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, Ezekiel 36 is definitely in the background as Paul describes this. It's the same background Jesus is using when he speaks about a new birth. How is it in the background? Well, Ezekiel 36 says, Our hearts were sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We were washed from all of our filthiness. And the word for filthiness in Ezekiel 36 will not give you warm fuzzies. It's a bloody menstrual cloth. The state of your native soul, depraved in sin, was total uncleanness. And you were washed. And then God took your heart of stone out and gave you a heart of flesh and made His Spirit indwell you. So washing here implies the removal of sin, 
the removal of your guilt and all your inherent corruption. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you and me are made acceptable in God's sight. As our heart of stone is removed and we're given a heart of flesh. If anyone is in Christ, you heard Sinclair Ferguson use this verse this morning. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. And this renewal, this new creation is by the power of the Holy Spirit. No longer are we deceived and dominated by the deadening power of sin. We're liberated by the power of the Spirit. We're made new. New affections for God. New love for Christ. A new desire to obey. A new habit to turn from sin. To be conformed to the purity of our Savior Jesus Christ. We want to be like Him now. We're new. There is now life where spiritual death was coursing through our veins. Because as Paul says, elsewhere we were stone cold dead in our trespasses and sins. God's kindness and love came to awaken us and His Spirit is the agent of life in our soul. My friend, I have to ask you this morning, have you known that kind of change in your own soul? Has God saved you? Washed you? Made you alive in Jesus Christ and given you heavenly desires? Have you been brought to see your need for cleansing? That you actually need to be rescued by Jesus and own Christ as Lord? That you would live for His honor rather than for yourself? If you haven't confessed Christ as Savior, do so now. Because only He can save. But if you have been saved, if your heart has been liberated from sin's corruption, well, praise the Lord. That's what Paul is saying. Look at what your Father has done. Worship Him. But there's more to see. Verse 6. The Spirit by whom this regeneration and renewal came, verse 6, He, the Father, has poured out, that is, the Father has poured out the Spirit on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Do you see the incredible Trinitarian language that's being used there? The Father poured out the Spirit on us through Jesus Christ our Savior. And the language is picking up Joel 2 and Acts 2, Pentecost allusions, where the Spirit was poured out by Christ upon the church. Jesus had indicated to His disciples in the upper room in John 15 that He would send the Spirit of truth from the Father. It's a crucial little understanding of that phrase in a Nicene Creed that you might have kind of zoned out when you were saying that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Jesus isn't junior deity. He isn't God light. He is the very substance of the Father. There's equality of being and the Father and the Son pour out the Spirit. And that's what's happened here. Paul's relating that the Father has poured out the Spirit through Christ to do what for us? Well, to bring us into a greater knowledge of the love of God. This is what Paul will say in Romans 5. It's a parallel idea. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Dear friends, you'll often hear somebody like me, a pastor, argue, how do I know the Father loves me? How do you answer that question? You could be really simple because the Bible tells me so. Okay, I grant that. How do I know the Father loves me? God demonstrated His own love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I know the Father loves me because of Jesus. 
The Father gave His Son. But there's another proof. How do I know the Father loves me? God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God has richly, abundantly given the Spirit to us. A lavish gift is dumped upon us as individual believers to cleanse us and change us, to unite us to Christ and assure us of the Father's love to us in Jesus. The Spirit is the Spirit of adoption, <clears throat> testifying to us that we belong to our Father. And then He's teaching us and transforming us and bringing us into every need or every benefit that we need from the Father. All that we need, the Spirit is supplying to us. That truth, it ought to overwhelm us. As we walk around every day, the Holy Spirit is indwelling us as a demonstration of God's poured out love with our heart, into our hearts. How joyful we should be. How satisfied we should be that we are the temple of God as the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us. And why is the Holy Spirit given? It comes from the heart of a loving God. Oh, that we would live in view of the copious measures of grace that have been deluge, flooded to our souls. Indeed, let us recognize that salvation is accomplished in Christ by the Spirit with an ultimate aim in view. And we'll, we'll close with this thought. Look at the end of verse 7. So the Holy Spirit's been poured out on you richly through Jesus Christ so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What is our present privilege of God's salvation? Well, we are those who have been justified by His grace. We are credited with the very righteousness of Christ. It's been applied to our account. However, we aren't only justified by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, as glorious as that is. God has an even grander purpose. And what is it? That we might become heirs. That we might become heirs. Who is an heir? Well, a son. Before our cleansing and new nature, before we were born again, before our declaration of righteousness in God's sight through the righteousness of Christ, we couldn't be received as a son. We were covered in shame. The shame of that sevenfold description back in verse 3. But now we have a different standing entirely because of grace. And with this new position comes a new possession eternal life, a future life, unending with God. This is the thing that Adam lost because of sin, and we lost in him. And because this gift of life is given, secured by the indestructible life of the risen Christ, our lives presently as the sons of God are characterized by something that Paul mentions here, that we might become heirs according to the what? the hope of eternal life. The sons of God are characterized by hope. We have a hope linked to the certainty of our inheritance. And from whom does that inheritance flow? From the Father, who in His kindness and love took action to say, 
You know, no wonder the Apostle John looks at all this stuff and says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And so we are. This, brethren, is the marvel of grace. And it should radically impact the way that you live every single day. And notice, I didn't read this in in the uh, original Scripture reading, but notice in verse 8 how Paul says to Titus, I want you to insist on these things. Why? So that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Hearing of the Father's love, the fountain of His saving mercy, hearing of the Spirit's regenerating power, hearing of Jesus' redeeming act stirs us to do good works, to carry out the works our Father prepared for us. How can a soul so loved do anything else but to obey our Father and to delight in doing so? Do we abide, dear friends, in the love of our Father? And does it drive us to live to please Him? May the Lord help us to be a people who are characterized by hope, by love, by good works, because of what God has done for us in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come bowing down in awe of You and Your amazing grace. We thank You that Your kindness has been manifested, has appeared in Jesus. And we thank You that Your Holy Spirit has come with awakening power that we would behold Christ and put our faith in Him. Would You make our love for You increase? And would You make us to live as a people who do love You, who are conformed to Your character, who want to live to please You? Lord, help us to stand in awe of Your mercy and respond to it. For we pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said,